Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Dozens of protesters converged outside of Michigan's only women's prison on Sunday, January 16th, following disturbing allegations of rape, retaliation, and neglect. Two former employees of the Michigan Department of Corrections say they've witnessed a culture of rape punishment at Huron Valley Correctional Facility in Pittsfield Township, about 40 miles west of Detroit. They also say that drugs are distributed to the inmates who are participating in a program to combat opioid addiction. Inmates are fearful of retaliation for reporting guards and are regularly denied medical attention when seriously ill. The prison has a history of neglect and abuse. In 2009, the state paid $100 million to settle lawsuits that claimed male corrections officers had sexually abused and harassed female prisoners. The alleged abuse continued after the case was settled. Between July 2018 and June 2019, 146 women say they were sexually harassed, and 12 claim they were sexually assaulted, according to the MDOC. In September 2019, the prison was closed to visitors because of a scabies outbreak. About 2,000 women were isolated after they began complaining of rashes. A class action lawsuit filed in September 2019 alleged a host of problems, including overcrowding, poor ventilation, and leaky roofs that had contributed to chronic mold that was making inmates sick. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began in March 2020, 1,046 inmates have tested positive and four have died, according to the Michigan Department of Corrections. With 320 current COVID-19 infections, Huron Valley Correctional Facility has more active cases than any other prison in Michigan. After serving 27 years in prison for crimes she did not commit, 74-year-old Joyce Watkins of Nashville was exonerated this month, her convictions in the murder and sexual assault of her four-year-old grandniece overturned. Watkins, along with her then-boyfriend, Charlie Dunn, had been convicted in 1988 of first-degree murder and aggravated rape and the death of her niece, Brandy, but were both granted parole in 2015. Dunn, who died in prison before his release, was exonerated that same year. Watkins, meanwhile, left jail and sought to clear her good name, eventually becoming the first black woman in Tennessee history to have her conviction overturned. Quote, it was a long struggle to get here, Watkins told reporters through her lawyer, Jason Kitchener, the senior legal counsel for the Tennessee Innocence Project. Quote, we're grateful for the judge and we're grateful for the collaboration with the district attorney's office, Kitchener echoed. But Watkins lost 27 years of her life. Charlie lost 27 years of his life. His kids and grandkids grew up with people thinking that their father and grandfather was a murderer. There's nothing we can do to fix that. All we can do is acknowledge what happened to them and publicly celebrate their innocence now.
This week, we continue to air selections from a presentation moderated by Ruth Wilson Gilmore and featuring James Kilgore speaking on his new book, Understanding Ecarceration. Speaking from his own experience, he emphasizes that electronic monitoring is another euphemism for the expansion of the carceral net across the globe. Enriching corporations and shackling prisoners, often at their own expense, from the U.S. to Palestine to South Africa. He talks about the gender disparities that arise because the toll that electronic monitoring often takes on family members. People, often mothers, daughters, partners, and sisters, who are tasked against their will with becoming, as Gilmore puts it, unsworn deputies. Gilmore and Kilgore talk about their prison abolition work in both California and Illinois. And Kilgore argues that we must expose the reality of incarceration and include the struggles of the monitored in the broader horizon of abolition. Here they are. Let me ask you this. You were talking about this thing called the cloud. Could you lay out for us a quick sketch of what the cloud is and why we should be aware of as well as wary about this thing called the cloud? Okay, so before I do that, everybody should look up. If you look up at the sky, you'll see the cloud there, right? <laughs> I mean, it's that 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 word kind of is kind of confusing. I don't even know, know whether to say it's in the cloud, on the cloud, whatever. But I mean, the cloud is basically a big. I mean, to make it real simple, it's basically a big hard drive. You know, it's basically a big Google Drive that's gathering databases from from all kinds of sources. But the the bulk of the cloud is owned by Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. So basically when we're sending, when immigration is sending data, when the criminal justice system is sending data, um, when companies are sending data, it's going to the cloud and then the companies do what they will with it. So they can use mathematical formulas, algorithms to use that data to track certain people, to maybe predict their behavior, to track certain companies or industries, to see where they might invest in the future. There's a whole range of ways in which they're using this information to benefit themselves, but also to heighten the control that they have over populations, particularly the targeted populations. Mm -hmm. Now, this sounds um, so overwhelming, again, because it's so big. Uh, so I'd like to ask you to um, talk to us about some of the ways that you see people have brought themselves together, perhaps created solidarities because of the general threat of constant and uh, intensive and extensive surveillance as you understand it. You know, a lot of the work has really been has really focused on unpacking some popular education, say, by the Lucy Parsons Lab in Chicago, has done a really excellent job of trying to unpack first figuring out what is all the surveillance technology that that Cook County in Illinois uses, and then being able to popularly describe what it does, who it targets, and how you might how you might contest that. And I mean, one of the things about this that's also overwhelming and complicated is the information is hard to get, right? Even on something as simple as an electronic monitor, companies are not held accountable. 
So they don't write reports, they don't do evaluations. So we don't even know, for example, how many people are on electronic monitors in the US at any given moment. Nobody has that data. Or the companies may have that data, but we can't access it even with Freedom of Information Act requests. So one of the real basic things in terms of fighting back against this is getting information so you can accurately figure out what's really taking place. I mean, for me, that's that's kind of a starting point. And in the work that we've done, say, in the state of Illinois, where we tried to push for legislation to eliminate electronic monitors, we found that we had to press the, the state to reveal who was on the monitor and what penalties they faced, et cetera, et cetera. So all these details are really difficult. I know you always say that activists must be nerds, right? So when you're fighting this stuff, you have to do research and you find in this particular, with these particular technologies, the data is not easily accessible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it is true. Activists it, throughout the history of uh, liberation struggle have been nerds. Um, spontaneity has its um, power and uses. However, the most successful large-scale changes come about because people have figured out what to do and do it. It doesn't mean they have to have PhDs or even be able to read, but rather be able to focus and think systematically about problems. So I was thinking as you were talking about the book that um, Vicki Law and Maya Shenwer published about a year and a half ago called A Prison by Any Other Name, which also gives us some uh, insights into the expansion of the police state into every corner of vulnerable people's lives. And uh, I wonder whether the Lucy Parsons project or other projects that you know about have done the kinds of grassroots information gathering that can become the basis for a concerted struggle, whether it's struggling against the local police or against the state legislature and so forth. I'll I'll give another example to maybe make this a bit more concrete. Uh, Some years ago in California, in rural California, in the part of California where they were building prison after prison after prison, there were all kinds of people, and as there still are, doing all kinds of work around questions of environmental uh, justice as well as economic justice. And we prison abolitionists learned pretty quickly that these movements actually were one. The movement against environmental racism, the movement for economic justice, and the movement to end prisons were one thing. learned by learning side by side with our comrades in rural California how we could make that a reality. We learned from a small group of comrades, for example, who had been uh, suffering the toxic atmosphere produced by a fire that had burned for more than a year a fire where 40 million tires like from automobiles had been burning for more than a year, our comrades from a small community realized that if they went door to door 
and asked people what their experience was of this toxic atmosphere that they were all breathing, that would form the basis for the next step in movement. Just ask, what's your experience? So that's also the kind of nerd work. It's not only trying to find spreadsheets and do mathematical calculations, but also just systematically finding out what's going on. So do you have maybe some examples of that kind of nerd work? Sure. I mean, I think from, from the start, focusing on electronic monitoring for a minute, and then I want to talk about some work around ending cash bail and pretrial detention. But um, we started from the beginning with the idea that if we were going to, if people were going to find out about the impact of electronic monitoring, we had to gather the stories of people who were on monitors because the authorities were keeping no data on this. So myself and uh, the person that works with me primarily on this, Emmett Sanders, who himself was on a monitor after doing more than two decades in Illinois state prisons, we went around interviewing people in various places. We went to, well, I mean, we went to Chicago, we interviewed people in California, I interviewed people in Michigan, I interviewed people in Wisconsin, but we, we gathered their experiences of, of electronic monitors, and through that we were able to, to put together a picture of what electronic monitoring actually, how it impacted people, and we found that if we recorded these stories, that they became very powerful testimony, much more powerful actually than spreadsheets and all that stuff, which is important. But we all, but we we kind of think the lived experience is is the richest data, and then but you need the other, you need all of that together. So if we move that into the state, we put together a bill to eliminate the use of electronic monitoring for people coming out of prison in Illinois, and the people that were impacted went and testified in those hearings. And one woman whose son had been on electronic monitor came into the room with the box that her son had had for electronic monitoring and said, here, you left this thing in my house. You can have it back now. And then talked about how, you know, her her son had a medical emergency and he didn't he couldn't get permission to leave. And she had to decide as a mother whether to violate him or not. But I'm just using that as an example to say these stories become very powerful. But if we move into Cook County, the Chicago Community Bond Fund, and later on uh, the Illinois Coalition to End Money Bond, they started by doing, by collecting stories and by also mobilizing court watchers. So they, they trained court watchers to go into court and record what was happening in, in the courts to see if some of the reforms that had been put into place to see if they were to see if they were being followed. And then they produced periodic reports. And then they had all kinds of media, social media, op-eds, et cetera, et cetera, constantly monitoring the sheriff and all of law enforcement in Cook County to see if they were actually reducing the jail population as they had promised and reducing the use of electronic monitoring and other punitive technologies. So they studied not only the jail population, but they studied electronic monitoring. They studied all the other conditions that were put on people as part of pretrial release. And they really became the experts on this, but they also were able to strategize in ways that ended up with the passage of the Pretrial Fairness Act in Illinois, which is the first piece of legislation in the United States to eliminate cash uh, bail uh, pretrial. So that's they did this through an abolitionist lens. So they were very careful about 
what they were willing to give up to get a law to get a bill passed. So this is kind of the, the complicated issue that we face when we try to engage these things. Carve outs. Are we going to carve out people that have sex offense convictions? So we're going to we're going to let them rot, but we're going to let other people out. So these are kind of some of the kind of difficult decisions that we face when we're trying to deal with this at a legislative level, but still maintain an abolitionist vision. Mm -hmm. That's just great. And your detailed answer, which I'm really grateful for, gives the people who are listening to us today a sense of the, um, the kind of detailed work folks are doing there in Illinois and elsewhere that may or may not result in eventually a legislative victory, but it's definitely expanding the, the ground for abolitionist organizing in general, or what I call making abolition geography. You remind me of uh, a long process that some of us went through back in my days in California. At the very beginning of the 2000s, we, Critical Resistance, California Prison Moratorium Project, and one other organization, the Friends of the Kangaroo Rat, in fact, uh, went up against the state of California to try to stop them from building their newest proposed prison. And it was in the context of that fight that we did that kind of urban rural work that I described earlier, forming uh, solidarity, not allies, solidarity, becoming one with people doing environmental racism work or anti-racism work in urban and rural areas, in economic justice, issues about immigration and migration, all of that, just putting it together, putting it together. And at one point, we were making so much good noise and so much good trouble, as the late Representative Lewis might have said, that the then governor of the state decided to kind of shun us off to the side by looking like he was going to start a reform process that would dilute our more radical ideas. So we thought, well, let's see if we can get someone on this governor's commission to study mass incarceration just so we can have a, a nagging voice at the left end of the table. So we kept faxing in my CV and they obviously put it straight into the shredder. They didn't stop and even read it because they weren't about to put any kind of representation from the abolitionists. So what we did was we said, well, they can have their commission, we'll start our own. So we formed what we called the Shadow Commission. And we announced hearings all over the state of California, which as you know, is a big place. And we would just let it be known, we would go into common cause with people in urban and rural areas, in neighborhoods, in small towns, in bigger towns, explain what we were about, find the two or three people who are everywhere, who are inclined to abolition, whether or not they call themselves abolitionists, and then announce that the commission, the shadow commissioners in town to hear what people had to say. And we were always packed. People came out to talk to us. And we always kept our promise, which was 
we will gather what we hear and we will take it places where it could perhaps tip the, the scale, the balance of justice, but we can't promise anything other than we will not stop repeating what we've learned. And it sounds like this, this modality, which I know is one that had, uh, has had a long history throughout all revolutionary movements, whether we look at Guinea-Bissau, whether we look at South Africa, whether we look at what the MST is doing in Brazil now, whether we look at what is happening in some of the really astonishing successes in India and beyond, it's always the same, which is ground up with an understanding of what the thing, we're calling it the cloud today, is. <laughs> I wonder if we could talk for a little bit, zero in on some of these uh, experiences and, and speak specifically to the fact that uh, ankle uh, shackles do turn people's homes into prisons and really put the cost of being unfree onto households and communities. I'm thinking about the mother that you uh, described to us who came with the box to the hearing to say, here, you can have this back. <laughs> but thinking also about one of the effects of electronic carceral systems is that it is possible to compel households and communities to be unsworn deputies for the police. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, because so when I came home, when I came home from prison, two days after, uh, a woman employed by the Illinois Department of Corrections came and slapped that thing on my ankle. And as she closed the door to leave, my partner shouted all kinds of nasty things, which I won't repeat. But these people, you know, they're, they're bringing this jail into your house, right? And then they told me that I was only going to be allowed out of the house from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. Monday through Friday. So that's where this book started. <laughs> right there at that moment, I said, what the hell? It's four hours a day. And that was very typical in Illinois at that time for people on parole. But I think your point is about, you know, families being impacted, that there's what I call the Martha Stewart model of electronic monitoring, whereas you're sending, putting somebody on an electronic monitor who lives on a 151-acre ranch, unlimited access to resources and all of the things that they need. So that they, can be, they can be pretty comfortable under house arrest, but that's not who's under house arrest. Who's under house arrest is you know poor people, is black and brown people in, 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 in particular in, in, in communities that are under-resourced, they may be living with four, five, six, eight family members in the same space. They may not be able to go out of that space. So their family members not only have to deal with the fact that this body is always here. And if it's somebody who's just done 10 years in prison, that's a body with a lot of issues and you've got to deal with it. And so, but then you have some, some rules for electronic monitoring say that you're only allowed to have movement to do laundry and grocery shopping if there's no one else living in your house that can do those tasks. So the gender implications of all of this are incredible because we know that probably 85 to 90% of the people on, you know, on monitor are coming out of 
men's prisons and men's jails. So that means it's sisters, mothers, uh, partners, etc., daughters that end up doing all of those tasks, as well as doing the jailing work, making sure the person doesn't go out. But also there's the whole set of counseling responsibilities that come with dealing with somebody who's actually caged in your house. You know, so this is something that judges never think of at all. The other part of that is the fact that sometimes people are are put on house arrest in their family residence, which may be precisely the absolute worst place they could be they could be put. And I think particularly of a woman I know from Charlotte, North Carolina, Christy Puckett Williams, who had a history of being uh, abused by her partner and also a, a you know a history of substance use, and she was she was put on a monitor into that house where all that took place. So you're setting that up to be repeated. And it's I think that's most apparent when you have youth that are put on these on these devices who are maybe put into a into a house where all kinds of stuff is happening, whether it's domestic conflict, whether it's substance use, whatever, and they can't escape it. They just have to sit there and 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 wait for whatever is going to happen to happen. So it's it's yeah, it, it really is a big part of what happens. And it's and I think because of the gender implications of it, it's also off the radar. It's not even talked about by the decision makers in these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And indeed, even if somebody coming home goes into a situation uh, in which they are, their home becomes a jail, whether or not there's all kinds of other disruptive activity in the house, when the house becomes a jail, it's no longer home for anybody. It's no, so all tensions rise. If I'm understanding you and I'm understanding what I read in your book, all tensions rise. The hidden uh, money cost to people who are um, not only paying the cost of the device on their ankle, but paying all of the other costs to keep things together, then changes an entire social dynamic that could be all right or not, but won't be because home has become not home. It's become this other thing. And it it also creates a dependency on the part of the person who's on the monitor which makes them feel helpless. They can't contribute to the income. They can't do any of the tasks. They can't go to their children's school events. They can't do all kinds of things that they would want to be involved in to try to be human, right? And instead, they're just you know parked in that, parked in that house. So there's all kinds of resentments that build up going both ways. Thank you to everyone who helped with the show. KiteLine could always use more help. Our show is run entirely by volunteers, and we're looking for folks to join our team. If you'd like to help with prisoner correspondence, interviews, news, or social media, please send us an email at kiteline at wfhb.org. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. 
please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call and phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.